You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. You know, there are demons in this world. There are those that haunt us. One would think that we could see them as the visions in front of our eyes. But no, the ghosts that haunt us are only in our heads. The only people we ever see as apparitions. are only in our own minds and in our dreams. You know, there's been a lot of talk about what we need to do, what we need to say, and who we need to follow. There's been a lot of influence here and there, and the spiraling conjectures of all that has been over the last year have culminated in this. 2016, what a horrible year. 2017, what a time to begin afresh. I've been taking new chances and and thinking about new things. It's probably for the best that I took a break from this and I really thought about the kind of way I wanted to present my own show. If you've never listened before, this is the Anarchaeologist podcast, a podcast dedicated to bring out the extra little different parts of archaeology that people don't usually talk about. And I feel that a lot of history is centred on that, is that a lot of history gets forgotten about because people think it's not interesting. But I really, really disagree. I really think that in the mundane and the pieces of history where we think there can be no more evidence found, there isn't anything interesting there. It doesn't tell a story. It's precisely the places in which we most have to look. It's not fun. It's not sexy. It's not amazing, like gold digging, like digging up gold from a Saxon burial, but it's something. It's something human. And that's the important thing here. Archaeology, whatever and however you define it, is about humans. Humans doing their best. And I think we have to begin writing our own archaeological record. We have to start thinking, how about we write our own history? We talk about what we want to see in the future. The past allows us to do that. The past tells us how the future will see us. Let me explain it like this. Look at the way stories are constructed, the way in which 
ancient beings are advisors in the present because to them the past is just yesterday they they have no awareness of the instantaneous moment or that that instantaneous moment is so much smaller than our understanding of that instantaneous moment in those stories of ancient beings advising the present it is because they are ancient that they can provide some assistance now I think of the stories in sci-fi of the future where a future traveler comes back to the present or back to the past think about how in each time something just doesn't seem right or something doesn't agree with this future traveler what if we could think like a future traveler what if we could think like someone in the past that's the value of archaeology and that's what i want to talk about that's what i want this show to be i hope you're on board with that because i really really think we can do something beyond just sitting around digging holes now what that's going to be i'm not sure i've still got a full-time job that's not archaeological rated yet and um it's it's taken up a lot of my time in a lot of different ways um just traveling and trying to get things organized but there's a schedule there's a there's a schedule to this all and uh, I'm hoping that um, over the next couple of months, you'll hear a lot of familiar and some new voices uh, when I'll talk to them here on my show. So if you're wanting to get in contact with me, Twitter's the best place to get. I talk to an amazing amount of people on Twitter. And the reason I bring this up is because I, um, a couple of, yeah, basically, now it's about a week ago, <laughs> I put out the first tweets of the ARC Manifesto, the, archaeologi- the Archaeologist's Manifesto. And I kind of wanted to sum up in about 10 points what I was thinking at the time and what I kind of felt archaeology was important about archaeology. Now, I don't think I can really cover in great detail all of them in one show, so I'm going to make them a little bit more spread out, okay? Now, I don't know if you're thinking, oh my god, this guy's just going to be ranting on for half an hour. It's it's more like 45 minutes, and yes, you know, I think, and I hope, that um, at least my voice is interesting enough for you to listen. I'm just kidding, by the way. I'm just kidding. I'm not very good at monologues. I'm really not good at monologues. Unless it's, like, acting. No, I'm not even good at acting either. Do you know what? We'll just scrap that, and we'll just admit that I'm not really good at anything, but we can try. We can try. So, the Archaeologist Manifesto is meant to be a summary of thoughts of modern archaeology. I mean, we we had processional archaeology leading to post-processional archaeology, leading to, well, kind of interpretive archaeology, and then everybody kind of threw their hands up in the air and went, "Uh, I'm not really too sure anymore. Now, obviously, I've talked about how I'm from a scientific background. When it comes to archaeology, I'm a chemist, um, archaeologist, chem archaeologist, whatever you want to call it. And so... You know, for me, archaeology is a balance between humanities and sciences, and that's what makes it great. 
But at the same time, I feel as if there is something missing from the next jump. What is the next jump in archaeology? And I th I've thought about that ever since I got introduced to archaeological theory, is this is the great stories of the past. This is the great development of the past. But how can we move forward? If you look at the greats like Binford and like Shanks and Tilly and Hodder, what can we learn further? I mean, who is the next Binford? Who is the next Shanks and Tilly? I think that archaeology is coming to grips with its global identity in many ways. In many ways, it's having to deal with colonialism more and more. Not that it's gaining colonialism, but yet it's realizing how entrenched it is. I think that for most archaeologists, especially the ones online, I can't speak for others, I, I can see when people talk about things like the Dakota Access Pipeline, there is such an emphasis on talking about, um, on talking about voices of indigenous people and talking about how the state um, intervenes when it comes to certain laws. Um, in America, of North, worthy note is NAGPRA, the North American Graves Repatriations Act, I think it is called. If I've said that wrong, I really apologise. Now, the fact is that people know about this law. People understand it, well, from a professional point of view. But it just seems that even within that space, it's almost ignored as usual. You know, archaeology isn't interesting. Archaeology is just a luxury. It's not important. When, in fact, it is more than important. It is this archaeology that we do, this discovery, that literally allows us to see the past and understand where we are in the present. It gives us the foresight, the hindsight, and the present sight to understand the context in which we are operating. And going back to the Dakota Access Pipeline, I think it was very, very important to note how... The, the brutality of private um, contractors. I mean, you know, the, the police were appeared at one point, but like the most of the problems were caused by these private security forces. And those were horrific problems. But the thing is that, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline was moved around the town of Bismarck because of fears and concerns, but um, when a when it actually went over Native American lands the or Indigenous peoples' lands, it, it wasn't really treated with the same sort of, oh, we shouldn't do this because it might affect something. And it's that kind of relation of effect, of this, this kind of split between, you know, um, what we could consider um, an American town of settlers and people who are indigenous people, you know? Um, so I think if we engage better with our past, we can better understand and make better decisions here. At the end of the day, the Dakota Access Pipeline is a decision by energy companies who are multinational companies who at the end of the day are looking for profit. And I'm sure in principle there's no problem with looking for profit, but the means by which one accumulates wealth is, I think, very important. And I find it hard to 
watch as the people, the protesters, the water protectors at the Dakota Access Pipeline are being brutally attacked uh, with no recourse. You know, there's no kind of fight back at all from the government or anybody else who should be protecting them. I know things have died down right now, but it's not ended and it won't ever end unless we do something. And that's where I want to come to the first point in the archaeologist's manifesto. Number one, the past is the structure upon which the present is constructed. There is no blank slate. I think this is the most important part of the archaeologist's manifesto. I think this is where we have to begin as archaeologists. We have to realise that when we engage with the past, just because it's a new site and there's no site records doesn't mean there isn't a past. It doesn't mean that it's just been locked until we've got it. There's more going on than we could ever imagine. Constantly. And, I mean, what I'm talking about is a mix of post-depositional alteration, of um, chemical alteration, of bioturbulence, uh, tur- uh, turbines. Yeah, Karen, I'm really, really sorry. I really, really do like geoarchaeology. I swear. Anyway, bioturb... Okay, bioturbation. That's what I want to say. Mm. When things get put in the ground, they change, and they change for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is natural, and the other one is human. And in many ways, those are two of the same thing. There's not really that much difference in the past between human and environmental changes in terms of the effect that they have on certain things. However, I think it's really important that we understand how we affect things, just in the same way in which we understand how acidic rain affects things, how the potassium content of soil gives us some sort of indication of of X, or the nitrogen content tells us uh, decomposition things, you know? There is so much to learn from the past, and we need to understand that even in the social and political realms, archaeology is not sterile, it's not clean. It's not just something to pick up and parade around. It has meaning, it has value, and it is important. And I don't want to ever dis... I don't ever want to discredit or demean the places of value which we currently hold in high value. Castles... Castles, Stonehenge, monuments that are so key to British identity. But at the same time, I'm sick and tired of their constant existence in the realm of this is our history. This isn't British history per se. I mean, look at Europe during the 15th century. Look at the changes that were occurring politically. I mean, look at Stonehenge as a good example of a monument, though great in size and stature, and definitely, definitely indicative of Britishness, was made at a time where Britain, as we know it today, didn't exist. 
There were no lands defined by arbitrary borders. There were no, like, there was no map of the world. Britain wasn't any different to the water across the, uh, to the land across the sea. But yet Stonehenge is British because it was made in Britain. It has a political value. It has a social and cultural value. Something that even when you measure and talk about it, you can't remove from it. I mean, that value was effective in stopping a tunnel being built for 30 years. For anybody who's wondering what I'm talking about. So there's a road in England called the A303. And uh, what the government want to do here in the UK is basically improve the road by creating a dual carriageway tunnel um, that goes very close to um, Stonehenge. Now, this has been proposed for almost three decades. It was first mooted in 1995. That basically means it was, you know, discussed, but without any kind of... um, There was no kind of meaning to that discussion. There was no end point for that discussion. It was just to see how the discussion would proceed if they were to do it. So the thing is that, obviously, all you landscape archaeologists out there will be knowing that coming close to any sort of site, um, any sort of monument, there is an implication that the area around that monument is also a valuable part of that site. You know, we know in Scotland there are stone circles where on adjacent hillsides you can actually see one stone circle to another. That these kind of points were not isolated points of monumentality, but part of the undulating structure of the land and how people saw that the land was not just a special point here or there, but there was connections between those points as well. Now, with that, bearing that in mind, the tunnel is going to be underground. It's going to basically be cut and dug underneath and uh, it's about four kilometers long. That's 2.5 miles in old speak. And it it's meant to be relieving congestion, of course, and doing X, Y, and Z. But a lot of people are against it. There is a heritage alliance uh, called the Stonehenge Alliance. And um, they, w- they are basically saying that a short tunnel... Anything shorter than 4.3 kilometers would do irreparable damage to the landscape. And what's interesting is that the alliance themselves, the Stonehenge Alliance, are not really advocating complete um, stoppage of the road itself, but rather they're asking that the tunnel may be made quite long so that the effect that it has on the surrounding landscape is minimal. You know, it'll be good to actually get your uh, your own responses to that. Do you think a longer tunnel, uh, which obviously is f- the ends are further away from the site, do you think that would impact the site of Stonehenge? Have you ever been to Stonehenge? Of course, who hasn't? <laughs> I haven't. Um, what do you think? Do you think that the area around Stonehenge should be sufficiently protected as opposed to other areas? Is there something... 
you know, is there something to now be said for other tunnels and other roadways being built near other sites? Or is it just Stonehenge we have to protect? But the thing is, yeah, again, the past has become a social and cultural kind of identity that Stonehenge can actually garner a lot of support even from beyond the heritage, the Stonehenge Alliance. Um, I'm just reading here as per the BBC. Uh, apparently in 2015, the Stonehenge Alliance had a petition calling for uh, that gained 17,500 signatures, um, which asked for a longer tunnel. It's obvious that in the UK, at least, Stonehenge is supported by people not only who are directly archaeologists, who are directly historians, but also people who are interested in the past. I think we have to be more aware that the past carries baggage and that the past in other people's minds may have some sort of sense beyond a value of which we can just ascribe to it written down. What I mean is that just because a bracelet is worth $4.3 million doesn't mean it's actually worth that. For example, if you, you look at a factory, a factory has materials and they make a product. They have, Whether they craft the product or machine manufacture it, there's costings that go all the way up. So when you get to the end product, you can see the breakdown of all the materials that went into it. And on top of that, the, um, the kind of price that was marked up for labor and other costs. But when it comes to the past, this stuff isn't mass produced. It's not mass manufactured. There's no material cost because the person who got the materials, well, they probably traded for it. There's no cost as we know it. There's no understanding as we know it. Because they weren't us in the past. They weren't, didn't think like us. They were different. And so when we put a price on the past, we are putting a price on the value of that past to us. That's not how important it was in the past. That's how important it is to us now. And sure, you could argue the material value of that, the material value of the object comes into play. You know, when you have gold bracelets that are, you know, how many ever carats? There are important pieces out there. But not all that glitters is gold. Not all that is important is necessarily shiny and glinting in your eye. I mean, look at our landscapes. Look at the way they move and the way geography informs people. I'm very lucky. I have a job where I commute and so I sit on a train and I get to see the outside. I get to see the hills. I get to see the mountains and I get to see the sea. And to me, that sea is beautiful. Those mountains are great. I just want to know, how did people in the past look at those mountains? How did people think about that? And I don't just want it as an end point of my own knowledge. I want to know if we can 
use that, if we can talk about that, if we can say, you know, actually, this is this might be inform us of where we need to dig next. There is something to be said for great archaeological research. There is something to be said for data collected through meticulous methodology in the field. But to truly engage in that, one really needs to know how that stuff was made, how that data was collected, how it was put together, and by which form was it then presented. When we talk to the public about the finds we have and we try and strip it of all of its kind of theory and interest and theory and cultural and political kind of baggage, we are left with raw data. And raw data can tell us nothing. Data does not speak for itself. Data is silent. And that's my second point on the Archaeologist Manifesto, that the past is political. The data does not speak for itself. I want to, at this point, introduce a friend of mine who goes by the name Eve, or Evelyn, on Twitter. And um, she was... I, I put the tweet out, Arc Manifesto, and I asked people to respond. And she took it upon herself to then respond uh, properly. And I want to read you some of what she said because of how important I think it is for us not to be caught up in our own ideas. I think it is important to realise that archaeology has more meaning than just what we dig up, you know? And we have to understand that, you know, even if we are really, really, really um, clear about what we think we mean, we may be completely misled. So I'm going to read a few tweets from Evelyn, and I'm going to try and work through them. I must say, Evelyn is uh, studying currently at the University of Glasgow with sociology and... Oh, what was the other thing? I'm really sorry, Eve. Please forgive me. Um, so... Basically, she took issue with the past as political because it's not the first time it's ever been said um, is, you know, political. The political is personal. It was the calling card of the feminists in the 1970s. It was this idea that, you know, perspective means everything and nothing is absolute. Um, so... Evelyn begins off by saying, look, your Arca Manifesto is predicated on an absurdity inherent in political variants of post-processual archaeology. Yeah, 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 it is. Post-processual archaeology for the win. God damn it, I love you, Shanks and Tilly. Anyway, um, so, you know, you come on, you come, you come to my house and you, like, disrespect my people? <sighs> Of course, I'm going to be a bit peeved, but let's see, let's see what happens next. She then goes on to say, you believe the past is political. Mm-hmm. You also believe the political is personal and vice versa. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So these are the establishing points. So from that, what we get is P1 or point one, the past political. Point two, the past is personal. Uh, the political is personal. Therefore, conclusion one, the past is personal. Now, 
I'm finding it very difficult to disagree at this point because I think that for a lot of people, the way they understand the past is only through a personal view, that what they understand and what they like about the past is really what they think is important. And what that has led to is people getting into positions of power where they can allocate resources and then make decisions about what sort of history should be saved and what shouldn't be. That would be my take on it. But what I think Evelyn is saying, I'm not like, you know, again, I will have her on the show and she can go through this with me, is that, you know, the past is the past. It actually happened. And just because you say it doesn't happen because you don't like it doesn't change the actual fact of the past. She goes on to say, that's not the specific absurdity. Um, it's absurd because it does not mean the same. It's absurd because it does not mean the same that people taking the past personally, that the past is not personal. Okay. Next, we add the nature of what is personal is purely subjective. So we get conclusion one: the past is personal. Point three: whatever is personal is subjective in nature, and s- conclusion two: the past is subjective in nature. And that is the fundamental absurdity undermines everything for which you advocate. It can rebut every point made. Your argument is valid, so the logic can't be disputed, P3 can't be disputed, and C1, conclusion 1, rests on two beliefs you personally hold. At least one of those must be false. So then I obviously have to respond. Um, And... (sighs) Perhaps I'm not seeing the forest for the trees at this point because I'm still trying to argue that data is just data, you know, and that data doesn't understand us. I think, I think at the end, Evelyn basically says is the past is objective Events occurred the way events occurred. Info was lost over time, obviously making intimately knowing the past with 100% certainty impossible, but it doesn't change the past. And I completely agree with you there. I really do. I think for me, where I want to, where I want to take this is fighting at the the intersection of where the past means the public, where people engage with the past, where the past is understood in a certain way. And I want people who try and assert that the past is a certain way to now not be as able to do so by solely by the authority of the past. You know, that kind of authority that comes from when you're an archaeologist at a party and somebody says, hey, what do you do for a job? I'm an archaeologist. Oh, 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 cool, cool. What have you found? What was the coolest thing you've ever found? Have you found a body before? Um, you know, the questions that archaeologists get, you know, um, I, these, these, that's the point at which I want people to understand that the past is not something set in stone when we get it, when we understand it. The past is much more nebulous and ununderstandable, unobtainable. And that's what makes it interesting. The fact that we're striving to understand something we can, by its own existence, not understand, 
it's it's just part of human nature, you know, and I think the past is objective. What happened did happen. But what it goes what happens nowadays is that that past is used to justify the present. It's used to inform the present in a way to create political things. And this exactly is what Evelyn says. She says, you know, the you know, the past is not political, but is politically exploited. And the past is not personal, but is taken personally. And then that can be personally exploited. Now, Evelyn is at dingledody 77 on Twitter, so you can follow her for all her other stuff. But I think I, I can't say it best. And, you know, when somebody else comes in and smashes everything you've built up and then makes a better sandcastle, you know, you have to give it to them. It's a great sandcastle and it's probably a better sandcastle. And I think this demonstrates the need for archaeology not to be stuck in its own bubble, that we can't just be agreeing with people. I mean, it's so easy to say yes and to agree with other people when they say things because you know that nobody else outside those circles will ever agree with them. Nobody in the public is going to go, yeah, well, I think that um, the political relation of these uh, artifacts to their original country origin is very, very important. And I think it would encourage us to formally recognize these kind of artifacts as being stolen. You know, I still think the argument of repatriation is something that we needs to have a very much more public face. But if you were to take that to the public tomorrow, I think there would be difficulties in um, engaging properly in that. But if somebody talks about it as an archaeologist on Twitter, I'm sure, yeah, I'm, I'm going to retweet that. I'm going to retweet that to hell. Yeah, you're going to get retweeted. Mm. Because I think repatriation is important. It needs every single retweet and heart it can get. Because that's the thing. Nobody believes in repatriation. I think the public has a real problem with repatriation because it thinks, for some reason, the British Museum would be dead and empty. It would be like a, like a complete warehouse of nothing if we repatriated some objects. I mean, this idea that repatriation is just acquisition, that repatriation doesn't pave the way for something better, is ridiculous. Honestly. But please, please... Find somebody you disagree with this week. Find somebody who doesn't think the way you do. And just make sure that you have a good argument with them. And I mean a good one. With points made, with things pointed out. Okay? Right. After this break, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Archaeologist Manifesto. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the 365 Days of Archaeology. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and employment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the resources page for useful links, a directory of CRM archaeology firms in the U.S., and a link list to state site forms. Find PCS resources at www.pcscourses.com forward slash resources. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. I really wanted to talk about the ways in which we can do better when it comes to archaeological engagement, at least. 
And that's why I want to talk about the Archaeology Podcast Network's new project, the 365 Days of Archaeology. I think it's really, really, really important that we find ways of constantly engaging the public with really interesting things. Podcasts, I've questioned whether podcasts are the only method by which we can do this. And the reason was because there's so few people who listen to an whole R of somebody talking. Um, but there is a lot of people who would happily watch through YouTube videos or Instagram videos or Vine videos. And I wonder if there is a way to get to people who don't want to commit to a full hour's length, but would rather, you know, commit to a small, you know, a small time section, like um, two to five minutes, and they'd listen. They'd listen to things about archaeology. What if we could tell people about lithic analysis? What if we could tell people about the various theories and technologies we use in everyday work? What if we could actually talk um, in small little pieces about what we do? That somebody who is listening every single day would slowly build up a acquired knowledge. And I wouldn't say that it was somehow a, a superior knowledge to that of an actual education, but making the public more archaeologically literate will only cement its value. It will all it will do is make people more aware of how we value the past and why that past is valuable. So we've begun 365 days of archaeology already, and it's it's a lot of work, but it's really rewarding, and we've got a lot of really really good feedback for it, and we've got a lot of people listening, a hell of a lot of people listening. I mean, uh, you've probably seen it around um, our online places, but we have 40,000 monthly subscribers for the entire network. And that's all to do with you. That's all to do with you listening and saying, you know what, I'm going to subscribe to this. That's fantastic. And um, our 365 days are getting, you know, really, really big numbers. And that's because people are investing their time. And I, I can't really say anything, but thank you, you know, for, for investing that time and listening. If if we kind of thought about archaeology in the same way, if we said, look, we can do this here and we can do this here, we provide various different outlets for information to be given to people, then of course people are going to listen. People are going to make the choices to listen. Because I think sometimes archaeology has a few very, very good ways of doing something and thinks it'll stick with that. We need a better digital heritage. Um, we, we need we need just more options for people. And I think that's what we're trying to do. As a short aside, if you are considering podcasting in any form about the past, um, and you want to help out, um, we're always looking for content for Archae 365 Days of Archaeology. Um, if you want to record yourself saying little five minutes on a particular topic, and, you know, we, we've, we can clean, we can sort out the audio and everything gets done. We can, we can have it up. That's not a problem. Or if you're feeling generous 
there is, and you want to have an advert on one of our 365 Days of Archaeology podcast episodes, it's the $35 to sponsor an episode. You'll get a short little uh, sponsor message at the start of the episode, and uh, that'll be a way to get out to some of our very, very newest newest listeners. Um, so please contact either myself, Tristan at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com as well. Obviously, you know, we get donations from people and I, I'm honestly amazed about the amounts that people give. I really have no... Of no words, you know, it's really lovely that people help us out, um, and we're we're you know we're really opening up the adverse spaces that you hear in every show to lots of different people. So if you are interested in sponsoring us or having promotional ads on any of our shows, you know you can always talk to us because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make this a sustainable kind of project because we think there's a lot of really really great. Um, parts of podcasts that can help more than other ways of uh, informing the public. I mean, the thing is, talking about the past to people who really matter and who really care about the past, that's been the goal of this show. I mean, if you look back at all the different guests I have had, they're all amazing people. And they're all amazing people who said, yes, I'm going to talk to Tristan for an hour. (laughs) That's okay. Um... And they've come in and they've just given it all. They've given it their best. They've told me things. They've said things to me. And, you know, brings to mind Teresa O'Mahony and talking about enabled archaeology. I mean, where do you usually see the discussion on BBC about the impact of, you know, what archaeologists with um, uh, various hurdles have to deal with when it comes to commercial archaeology? Because it doesn't get talked about. Because all that people care about or all people in the media think people care about is the goal at the end, the, you know, the little shiny little object, the discovery, the results. But really, the whole way up from the bottom, people are interested in who are archaeologists, what they do, how they do it. That's what people want to hear. And that's why the Archaeology Podcast Networks exists. It exists because we want to let people know what archaeologists do. We don't want to tell people. We want to let them know. Because there's nobody better to tell you what being an archaeologist is like than an actual archaeologist. Someone who's passionate about what they do and what they research. And I'm passionate about other people who are passionate. You know? And I'm not just trying to be meta because it's cool and anarchistic. No, I I mean that. I really love seeing people's passion come out. And I want to take that passion and bring it somewhere. Because I think that is what's going to save history and save archaeology. In, In the UK at the moment, the government is slowly, slowly slashing funding for heritage. It's slowly taking away stuff from museums. And although we'll have commercial units in overdrive to do all the new building projects like the High Speed 2, we're going to lose something. I mean, there was recently a report out that the Ministry of Defence was worried that basically due to funding cuts, they wouldn't be able to keep, collect and curate um, items from um, like military history. And whether you are a pacifist or a warmonger, I think 
the nature of political history tied into military history is something incredibly important. We shouldn't forget those who gave up their lives in conflict. And whether we agree with the reasons and the results of any wars, all of us know it it was never the soldiers themselves who were making the decisions to go to war. So I think that the fact that we have a military history on the decline is is just as threatening as any kind of other history. And if we don't make a big change to how we talk about the past, how we talk about heritage, we're going to lose things beyond just what decays. We will be the decay. And this is what I mean when I say the past is political. It, it, the way we see it is really a function of what resources get assigned to what. I mean, imagine a world where the government said, well, we only like this kind of history. We're only going to research, put money into this kind of history. So you know everything about like, a certain time period that kind of fits into what the government kind of wants to present for the country. But anything else has to be volunteer provided. And volunteers do a lot of work. Volunteers are undervalued. Volunteers are experts in their own right. And this is what we need to talk about is how that, you know, despite people wanting to say that, oh, if you're a volunteer, you're not getting paid for it. So nobody, you know, it's it's not a you know worthwhile thing. Being a volunteer, you can still be an expert in something and you can still be doing something to the best of your ability, far beyond maybe somebody who is paid. I mean, consider the scenario where a retired archaeologist who's an expert in lithics uh, versus somebody who's just got out into the field, has just finished their degree. I mean, one's a volunteer, one's paid to work. How is the pay that's assigned to one really an indication of their ability and experience? And I think we need to really rethink about history in the same way. I mean, why just because we fund one part of history or one kind of understanding of history doesn't necessarily mean it's more important. It's just because we funded it more. And although history happened, history is the past, the past existed. If we don't know about it, we can't learn from it. I hate the term, history is doomed to repeat itself. History is not doomed to repeat itself. History teaches us. It informs us. And we need to make the better decisions. Because the fact that we had the chance to learn from the past and we did the same thing, that's worse than when it originally happened. That's worse. History does not repeat itself. My friends, all history does is get worse and worse. And all we do by ignoring it is we get worse and worse. We are not doomed to repeat our history. We're doomed 
to disappoint the past. Thank you again for listening to An Archaeologist Podcast. If you want to get in contact with me, you can check me out on Twitter at An Archaeologist. I've also got an Instagram feed that I don't really update. And you can email me, Tristan, at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, we have the 365 Days of Archaeology project going on at the moment. So if you want to check over that over at the www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash arc365. Remember, there's a hashtag for it as well hashtag arc365 so give me your feedback on the episode tell me what you think and especially if you tell me think i'm wrong please let me know send me an email let me know if you want me to discuss the email you've sent Otherwise, you can always support the network. If you go to the archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, there's an option to donate a one-time donation. Or if you're an organization, please feel free to ask us about sponsorship and promotion during the shows. Thanks again for listening. And remember, the past is not always as it seems. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.